went over to New York, 100 Durbanites, and it was people uh, from Durban who were influential church leaders, some politicians, business people, some educators. We all went across to New York, and the goal was, how can we change a city? That was, that was the goal, and we, we, had, we had people like Russell Curtis from Invest Durban. There was a whole crowd. And so we got there, built some relationships, and looked at how the church in New York had changed the city, mostly in the social justice space, in coming together. The church had grown in New York, and so we thought, let's, let's do that. That's a good idea. But then we came back, and we connected, which is really important, because you know how church pastors are always competing about how big my church is versus your church. So we decided to lay that down and just make friends, and we, we built relationships. And then Carte Blanche did us a favor. How many of you love Carte Blanche? Just you, you watch it to get your evening depression before you go into money. Anyway, so Carte Blanche absolutely roasted Durban. They, they let that little thing out about all the drugs and, and they found the worst places in Durban, took pictures of needles, and then nobody wanted to come to Durban. Anyone remember that? Yeah. Two of you. Okay, so, so then what, we, what City Story did is they got up and did a video. They said, Okay, this has really happened. We, we're going to make a difference. So City Story is standing up and saying, if you want to be part of it, um, if you're a Christian in Durban, you want to make a difference, come to us. 3,500 people signed up to make a difference in Durban. The problem was, we as City Story didn't know what we were going to do. So we had to come up with a plan really fast. And so we finally come up with a plan. And uh, there are two parts to it. There's, there's the event, and then there's a sustainable plan. So the event is next Saturday, um, eight churches are taking responsibility for different areas of Durban, from kind of Battery Beach all the way through to Shaka. The responsibility that Olive Tree is taking is lifeguards, so lifeguards and cleaning up the reef. So you're from Kloof, you can swim. We're going to swim along that reef and we're going to take all the litter off. And I, I hope it's really big because then we'll see olive trees going like this. Anyway, so we're going we're gonna to clean up the reef. And here's what we need. We need meals. We need people who can um, massage physios, anyone in the like medical space, you're really useful. Uh, and then the rest of us, we're going to do a little a litter sweep. And then sustainably, we're going to look after those lifeguards, um, help put some of them through the course, which is quite expensive. And we're going to look at a sustainable ongoing support to, to a lot of those lifeguards. But that's, that's the day. What's going to happen after that is that a bunch of business people, SPA got involved, um, a lot of corporates got involved, and what they said is, to get a sustainable plan in the city, we need to put urban improvement precincts, which is basically cleaning, greening, and securing districts into the city. And so what we're going to do, we've mapped out zones, and we're going to take one zone at a time, and uh, there'll be 200 staff going around one space in the kind of the Addington area. They're going to clean and green that area, and they're going to make sure it's secure. And then from there, once that becomes sustainable, the next area, the next area, and the next area. So I was involved in conversations and helping put, put this together. And I eventually said to the business guys, I said, guys, if you're really serious about this, you will buy properties in the inner city. To which they went, ah. So I said, here's the deal. You guys have money. I have people. I will take the people and I will go and live there if you buy buildings. To which they went, ah. So 
I'm going to take you, no, I'm joking, I know you moved up to the mountains for a reason, but I'm going to be taking the millennials in our church, and we're going to look to invest in that area of the city and look for a sustainable plan, because the only way you're going to change an inner city is if you move in and love the people in that space. Exciting, eh? Yay, I've got one yay. Okay, and Saturday, who's coming? Just, you're, you guys are pathetic. May God's guilt, no, he doesn't have that. But may something land on you and bring you along to, to say. Anyway, we are starting this series called Isibusiso, and uh, it means be a blessing. But what I, what I wanted to call it was be a blessor. But uh, you know, less funny for you. Anyway, I, I, I figured that would go down badly. But in order to set you up for the series, um, we, we've just come out of a series, God's Will for Your Life. Now, just show of hands, who doesn't want God's will for your life? Exactly. We all want God's will for our lives, but getting God's will to happen in our lives is trickier than you think. And so what we said in week one of God's will for your life is that if you want God's will for your life, you have to die. You can't have your will for your life and God's will for your life because if you have your will and God's will, then what you do is you follow him, then you follow you, then you follow him, you follow you, and it's like Brexit. Just... If you want God's will for your life, you've got to die. Week two, we said that if you want God's will for your life, you've got to put your roots down deep into the love of God. If they're not deeply entrenched in the love of God, if they're entrenched in jealousy and consumerism and a whole bunch of other stuff, then the fruit you produce will, represent, will be represented by what your roots are in. If you want God's will for your life, you've got to dig your, your roots deep. And week three, we said, if you want God's will for your life, you have to be able to follow the light. So if you watch a tree grow, it will grow towards the light. It will literally bend out of the shade into the light. And if you want God's will for your life, you need to learn how to bend your will to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then in the last week, which you didn't have, so I'm going to just bring two messages together. But if you want God's will for your life, you have to bear much fruit. And there are two types of fruit. There's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and something else. And there is the fruit of good works. So in Ephesians 2.10, it says, you've been created uh, anew in Christ Jesus to do good works. It starts off with, you are God's handiwork, or you are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works that he planned for you in advance. Basically, there is a list of kiff stuff. The series byline is do something kiff. There is, a, there is a whole bunch of kiff stuff for you to do that one day you'll be able to go before the Father and say, God, I did this for your glory. It's how we bear much fruit. So I'm going to talk about how you can bear much fruit in the context in which God has put you, which is cities. Now, I know that most of you think that God lives in the Berg. <laughs> where the air is clear, you can drink water from streams, where, where there's no noise. And when most of you think about the cities, you think about pollution, crime and grime, the densest concentration of the worst of humanity all in one place, like Pantown. Any Pine Town people here? Just checking. Love you, brother. Uh, you're, he's quite big. I, I meant the bluff. It was so funny. We had a, um, we had a men's camp 
Florida Road Men's Camp. Um, the Kloofies didn't want to come because they said that the accommodation was too low class, but the Florida Road were like, this is like a hotel brew. So anyway, we, we went to, to men's camp and uh, we had a couple of testimonies. And one of the guys who gave a testimony had been in jail 42 times which is not going to jail. That's like alternate accommodation. That's what's going on there. Anyway, 42 times he'd been in jail. And so he shared his testimony, and, and everybody's like, wow. But there was, what I realized, there was a whole bunch of people who'd done some jail time, so I figured our church is, is maturing. Uh, anyway, so he shared his testimony, and then the next guy to get up had done everything other than murder. And so he starts sharing his testimony, and then he stops, and he says to the oak who'd been in jail 42 times, he said, how did you get caught so many times? <laughs> I tell that story because when people who are that broken can get saved and redeemed, then you can change a city. And when we as a church are reaching those kind of people, that's when I go, I'm doing some good works, God. So let's talk about cities. Um, I want to talk firstly about the importance of cities, then I'm going to talk about why cities are messed up, and then I'm going to talk about your role in the city. So here it goes. You've got your Bible, Genesis 4.13. If you've got your phone, you can turn there too. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. So Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then Cain gets punished by God. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And then God says, no, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to put a mark on you like a tattoo. You'll look hardcore. People won't hit you. And anyway, then it carries on verse 17. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Firstly, cities are not dense population in, in, in biblical language. Cities are fortified settlements. Here's the thinking. When you get pushed out of God's presence, you will have a void that you will do everything you can to fill, and so you will draw people towards you. So Cain builds a wall. People come for security. People have been coming to the security of cities for thousands of years, at the rate it's going, by 2050, 70% of people will live in cities. The world is moving towards cities, which is not just a man idea, because we don't know how to handle birth control. What's going on with cities is a God design. So I'm going to, in a moment, I'll speak about the brokenness of cities, but, but from Genesis chapter 12, God puts into the heart of Abraham a desire for a city whose maker and foundation is God himself. And then we skip all the way through to Revelation. We see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and it's a city, and its length is from here to Cape Town. Its width is the same, and it goes the same height. So it's like a cube, and it comes down from heaven, and you will live in the city, and uh, there's only one spelling mistake. It says there's no C in there. But other than that, God's presence is in the middle. It's beautiful. We will love it. God starts in a garden. He ends in a city. Cities are part of God's design. But I want to show you a little bit of why cities matter to God. In, in verse 20, it says, Ada gave birth to Jabal. 
He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. Don't do that to your kids. Jabal, Jubal. Like, a, show some imagination. He's with a, he was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zilla also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. I just want to ask, how many of you grew up in a little town? How many of you are born and bred Durbanites? You've never left, left the city. May you feel ashamed of yourself. <laughs> For all those little town people who grew up in places like Pofada, and uh, I, I grew up in a little town in, in Zim, what you notice about little towns is everybody does everything. When you go to cities, people specialize. So one dude is, is raising livestock, another is making tents, another, another guy is in, into the art, stringed instruments and pipes. They specialize. So this is how it works. When you come from a small town, everybody in the small town tells you that you're going to be the next protel, the next springbok. And then you go to a city, and because of the densification and the talent, you wonder if you're going to make the C team. It's just kind of how, how stuff happens. Because the denser a population and the more diverse a population, the more talent you find. So my mom, she used to do shows in a city, and then she moved to a little town. She tried to do shows in the little town, and they were awful. I can say this because she doesn't listen to the podcast. But anyway, they, they were like really bad because, because the talent pool she was working with was terrible. And, and I, think about, I thought about that, and I, I thought, when you listen to the Natal Orchestra, you can have a hip-hop artist and a rapper and the Natal Orchestra all in one, and it'll sound incredible. Why? Because there's a density and a diversity that happens in cities that makes us all better. And this is really important. Because out of cities flow culture. If you want to influence the world, you start in a city. You know, things like the Me Too movement or the I Am Next movement, they, they may have been on social media, but they still gained traction in cities and then they float out. This has been the story for millennia, which is why Paul didn't plant churches in Naples. He planted in Rome and Ephesus and Corinth. He found the biggest cities so that he could influence the world because he knew if I wanted to reach the world, I would do it from cities and then it would go out which is really important because we're called to reach the world. And so you can do one of two things. You can either send people to Nigeria or you can plant a site on Point Road in Little Lagos. You can send people to India or you can plant a site in Phoenix, Little Bombay. You can plant churches, send people to Australia to plant churches there, or you can preach to white people. Either way, you're going to be planting churches all over the world. If you reach a city, you'll reach the world. So, cities are important from, from a strategic point of view. They're important from a design point of view. And then, cities are important because they show us how to do life. You know, there are these interesting laws in Deuteronomy 12. It says that if a woman is raped in a rural area, the man should be stoned. But if she's raped in a city and you don't hear a scream, both should be stoned. And, and the implication is this. There is a different way of doing life in a city to in a rural area. 
There's a different way to doing life in the inner city to the suburbs. In the inner city, because of the density of population, you have to understand and learn new ways of doing life. You have to integrate differently. I, I remember a few years ago, I was, um, I was trying to get, you know, Florida Road's a very mixed, um, culturally mixed group of people. So I was trying to get the whiteies to join me in the inner city on one of the series we were doing. And so I said to them, don't worry, we've got safety, we've got people all around, come with me, we'll go to the inner city, I promise you there's really interesting stuff. In fact, there's phenomenal stuff, you need to get into the inner city. And anyway, Zama came up to me afterwards and she rebuked me. And she said to me, Ross, safety is in the inner city. If my cell phone gets stolen in the inner city, I will scream. Someone will catch that person and I will get my cell phone back. When I get robbed in the suburbs, I'm terrified because no one comes to your rescue. It was interesting, a few weeks ago, I was driving back. I live in La Lucia. I was on the point, now La Lucia, going back to the point. And uh, anyway, I was, I was going home to La Lucia, and I saw this woman in distress. And I couldn't really tell what was going on, and I was flying past at about 80. And, and I realized, man, there's something wrong there, and something in my spirit said, go back. So I went back, and I turned around, did a circle, and, and I came back to her. And as I got up to her, I could see she was in more distress. So I opened my door, and she ran at my door, and she had like a 5 kg of maize. She threw it at me, smoked my leg, and she jumped in, and she said, drive, drive. And I, I drove off her. I said, what's going on? She said, no, there was a man. He was attacking me to take all my stuff. And people were just driving past me, one after the next. They didn't notice. See, that doesn't happen in the city. Because the population is, is so interwoven, and, and you learn a new way. It's important. God designed us to move from a garden to a city. And in a city, we have to learn relational skills that you don't need in the garden. In fact, I grew up on a farm. My neighbor lived, I don't know, 10 k's away. If I didn't want to see him, I didn't see him. In a city, you just got to see him. It's painful. Cities matter because you learn different ways. And then cities matter for strategic reasons and for people reasons. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Jonah. So Jonah gets told by God, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes 1,300 kilometers in the opposite direction towards Tarshish, which is a bit like lots of us. So, so we just go in the opposite direction. God organizes a whale to bring him back. He comes back. He goes, Nort, I'm not going to do that again. God says, go to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh, but he hates the Ninevites. And here's why. Ninevites were known as being some of the cruelest people on the planet. When the Ninevites went into a town, they would poke out people's eyes, chop off their hands so they couldn't eat, they couldn't see, and then they'd just leave the village like that. And people from other villages coming to trade would see this group of people blinded and unable to eat, and they would be terrified, and they wouldn't fight back when the Ninevites came. This is how the Ninevites worked. So Jonah then goes to Nineveh, and he, and he preaches, and he has his message. In 40 days, you're all going to hell. I can't wait for you to burn. Profound message. They all repent. It's the greatest revival of the Old Testament. 120,000 people give their lives to Christ. Jonah has massive success, and then he goes back, and he's bummed because they all repented, which is kind of confusing. And then he has a chat to God. 
And God says to him, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, in other words, they're clueless about life, and also many animals. God cares for cities, for the people, for the animals, for strategic reasons, for cultural reasons, but cities are messed up. I'm going to tell you why they're messed up. And when I tell you why, you're going to go, ah, because some of the why's in you and me. So there are two cities that the Bible keeps referring to uh, throughout Scripture. The one is Babel or Babylon. The other is Jerusalem or Zion. This is the heavenly city. This is evil city. And I'm going to tell you why. In Genesis 11, it describes how this city was built. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, a tower, a tower is a wrong interpretation. The actual word is a ziggurat, which is what archaeologists have found recently. A ziggurat is a space or a temple where people would go to meet with demonic powers to gain knowledge so that they could make a name for themselves. So that was what was happening. Babel is the original place of idolatry. Secondly, so that's the first problem. Second problem is they say, let us build a city with a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. Now, you either have making a name for yourself or you have making a name for God. One is called pride. The other is called humility. We are most proud when we are making a name for ourselves. You remember what Satan got kicked out of heaven for? Pride. You know what most people go to cities for? To make a name for themselves. And, and what the scripture basically says is that where there's selfish ambition and pride, there exists all kinds of demonic activity. Noticed anybody trying to make a name for themselves around you? Noticed any amount of demonic activity and pain? as young millennials are looking to see how many Facebook followers and Instagram followers they can get, even notice how much pain they're in. That's what happens when you're trying to make a name for yourself. You are most like Satan and you are most influenced by Satan when you're trying to make a name for yourself. Alternatively, when you're trying to make a name for God, that's called humility and God lifts the humble but opposes the proud. So this city is based on making a name for themselves Idolatry, And the last thing is fear. Fear drives them to build a city so that they won't be scattered across the, the earth. And fear will drive us to put big walls up with electric fences and crocodiles and moats. And, like we, we'll, fear causes us to push people away. Now let me tell you why this city breaks people. Pride is very sneaky. We can do good stuff with pride. So, Bok pride. I mean, didn't we all feel so good about Bok pride? I mean, 
We won. It was amazing. And then we had a whole bunch of gold medals. We even got the barista, like we owning it. Pride, you have school pride. And what pride causes you to do is it causes you to do great things. So Pharaoh built the pyramids out of pride. He was trying to make a name for himself. And out of pride, we still go to the pyramids and go, wow. The trouble is the pyramids were built on the backs of slaves. See, the thing about making a name for yourself is when you're lifting yourself up, you intentionally or unintentionally will start pushing someone down. And when you're trying to lift yourself up, you'll stop asking the question, how much can I pay them? You'll start asking the question, how little can I pay them? And ever noticed rich getting richer and poor getting poorer? See, and the problem with this, because this is pride-driven, the problem with this system is that these people lose their souls and these people lose their lives. See, this structure and this system causes deeper and deeper pain to this pe- person and to this person. Anyone noticed any cities where this is happening? But Jesus comes from Cape Town. Not anymore. <laughs> Jesus comes. And Jesus walks in. Remember, he's from heaven. He's wealthier than, than this earth can offer. And he comes literally as an Egyptian refugee. Born in Israel, goes to Egypt, where he's a refugee, and then he comes back. The poorest of the poor. And he goes to city after city after city, and he begins this ministry where he casts out demons, and he empowers the poor, and he sets people free, and and his love just explodes across the world. And people, what is this? Who is this man? As their lives begin to change. And then he preaches message after message after message of stuff like this. He says in Matthew 5, you've heard this before, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. He preaches these messages and the people who listen to them take them seriously. And as you study the early church, it'll blow your brains what happens in the, in the early church. In the early church, people take this so seriously that in Alexandria, I've been doing some research on Alexandria where the church exploded. The early church took these words to heart and in a city where people would take the babies they didn't want to leave them either at the temple or at the stoop of their home, the church would go around and they would do these thing called, things called baby hunts and they would go and they would find babies wherever they could and they would adopt them and the church became an orphanage and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives were saved and those kids grew up and they became Christians and they lived out their Christianity. In the early church, that when the plagues hit cities, the Christians would go and they would pray for the sick but often they would move into the houses to nurse the sick though they did not know them and they would love them and often die. Lots were healed, lots died. 
in the early church, they would go and they would find sick bodies when the plagues came through, and they would bury them because they believed in the, in the resurrection from the dead, so they would clean them and bury them, and that's how plagues actually ended in the cities, because the Christians took care of them, and people were watching and so blown away that they wrote stuff like this. This is a guy by the name of Diognetus. He says, they obey the laws, he's speaking about the Christians of the land, but far exceed them in their character. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring, which is allow them to die. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, their private lives In their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the city. Imagine we were that. See, you read about the early church and you just go, how did we get here? How did we focus so much on making a name for ourselves that we, we lost everything? A little while ago, I went to see a lady who helps me with all my issues that you guys give me. And, uh, and I was chatting to her and, and she said to me, Ross, why do you do this, this and this? And I gave her some Christian answer about that's what love does and because I'm basically a good guy. And she went, nah, it's just because you want them to like you. You ever been given a blood nose but been utterly empowered by it? Because I left that meeting and going, that's enough of loving those people. I am smoking them. It was just brilliant. I was just empowered. Somehow the church has been disempowered by this lie that it's the government's responsibility to fix the world. We, we've somehow bought into this thing that I pay taxes, therefore, therefore my life is my own and I exist to enjoy it. But the early church, they, they didn't. They existed for the king. And their lives were not their own, and they laid them down. And what I found in this world is that the people who you just never want to leave, that you want to be around your whole life, are the people who pouring their lives out for the poor and adopting, and they're taking care of issues that are not their own. And when you're around those people, you are so blown away. But when you're in the church, so much of the time in the church, people are in depression, they're in pain, they've, they've lost life because consumerism exists, and it rips up our hearts. But we can shift just a little bit. You can, you can go down and help out Life God on Saturday 
all four of you and a few more. You can just take a step. And then the next week, you can start, you can phone the lifeguard and say, how's it going this week? And maybe the next week, you can start praying for the lifeguard. And, and you just keep on a different trajectory. And one day you'll wake up and go, honey, should we move with Ross to Durban Beachfront? Amen. Some of you are like, no way, brother. <laughs> The church can get salty again. If you pursue the trajectory of consumerism, and it's not my fault, and it's not my problem, and the government ought to, if you pursue that trajectory, the end point of that is in some ways a brokenness of soul and an opposition by God. But if you will pursue... And just, you can't do it in a day, but if you start to pursue taking care and being salt to this earth, what you will find is that God will breathe on you and you'll feel a pleasure in your life and you'll start to feel a joy and a purpose that begins to exist. And I'm trying to call our church back to our roots. And so join us for the next four weeks as as we blood knows you after blood knows you after blood knows you to just move you a little bit, move you a little bit, move you a little bit. And how's about we lay down the, didn't I pay for that already? How's about we just try to grab onto what Jesus asked us to do? It'll bring you much joy. Let's stand. You know, one of the things my business friends always say to me is they say, Ross, if I had enough money, I would sort out that problem. I know you've never said that. Jesus didn't put us on earth to have power. Having power is being in government or being very wealthy or being something. He put us on earth to be power. Being power is having access to heaven to sort out a little problem that begins to affect a big problem. So, Heavenly Father, as we stand before you, I pray that this church will be ignited by your love and will shift just a little bit this week and just a little bit more next week, and they'll begin to be power to the world they find themselves And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit burns like a fire in them. Burn, God, in people. So that we can move just a little into your light in Jesus' name. Amen.